Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Hi, um, my name's Robert Buckingham, and I'm the creative director of uh, M Pavilion, and uh, we're delighted to have you here for M Relay. Um, and on behalf of uh, the Naomi Milgram Foundation, I'd very much like to welcome you. And also, of course, acknowledge the Boonarong people, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay our respects to their land, to their elders, past and present. Um, and of course, this place has been a, uh, a meeting place for thousands of years. And I think that's part of what gives this, um, this particular uh, uh, project such a, a great depth. Um, M Pavilion was conceived by Naomi Milgram as an annual temporary architect-designed uh, pavilion uh, in the Queen Victoria Gardens by a leading world architect, a new civic space for all of Melbourne to enjoy. This, our third pavilion, um, is designed by Indian architect B. Joy Jain of Studio Mumbai, um, and it's under this, his beautiful bamboo canopy that we're going to engage in our M Relay. Um, M Relay um, is also in its third year, and it's a key feature of our annual um, program of hundreds of free events uh, here each season. Um, we're going to take, as, you'll, as you know, uh, we have four sessions, uh, one starting tw uh, 10, 1, 4 and 7. So uh, you can come in and out all day. Um, M Relay, the concept, was conceived by Natalie King as a relay of ideas, uh, a cross-disciplinary discussion in which the baton is replaced by the microphone and each interviewer becomes an interviewee um, in a fast-paced pairing of, of a diverse collection of artists, designers, thinkers and doers in our community. This year, uh, the four intriguing themes, Cultivate, which is our first, um, play, pause and narrate, and the many speakers over the day have been selected and coordinate, co coordinated by Jennifer Zylinska. And Jennifer, thank you very much for all your hard work and congratulations. Uh, Jennifer, of course, has been supported by the M Pavilion team, Jesse French, Alan Weedon, Daniel Gladys and Alexander Zafidul. Um, we'd also like to thank uh, our many partners uh, for their support of M Pavilion's free public event program throughout our four months in these gardens. Um, major partners are the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and uh, ANZ. Today, however, we're, we're, we're also especially thankful to the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation for their support and encouragement of Emrelay. And to introduce the host of our first Emrelay topic, as I said, Cultivate, I'm delighted to welcome the CEO of the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, Catherine Brown. So before I introduce um, Peter, I was actually asked to just explain um, the Foundation's interest in M Relay. And um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we're meeting on, the people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to the Elders past and present, and also to the future leaders. So we're a foundation um, that was set up in 1923 by the Lord Mayor of the day then, Sir John Swanson. And we've always worked on really the issues of the day. And the issue of the day then was people who'd returned from World War uh, I with very serious disabilities and illnesses. And the hospitals couldn't cope. So it was really the first time the community all came together to fundraise 
um, in an organised way for an issue. And then over the years, we've, we've worked on um, quite challenging things, you know, most recently issues like homelessness, of course, and, and social inclusion, but, but also um, HIV AIDS we've funded and um, anorexia and I think all the waves of migration uh, since 1923, we've, we've supported different support programs. So we are a foundation for Melbourne. We're, we're actually independent from council. We have our own fund. The Lord Mayor sits on our board, um, but we, we try and really be the community foundation for Melbourne. So supporting M Relay was a great opportunity for us because it's about getting people together to talk about ideas and solutions and problems and and the future, and as a foundation that's 94 years old, we actually take a long-term perspective, so we actually are trying to look ahead, saying, these are the issues now, but what's coming next? You know, how are we going to adapt to climate change? What's the future employment for young people going to be, etc.? So that's just a little glimpse about the foundation. And uh, Peter, I think, is, is known really to everybody as the um, Australian host of Grand Designs Australia. Um, which is uh, wonderful. He's got an architectural practice that bears his name and he's received widespread recognition for over 300 multidisciplinary projects that have garnered around f 50 awards. So that is an amazing career. Um, and we look forward to um, Peter hosting our session on Cultivate. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you very much. Um, it's just great to be back in this wonderful pavilion again. Um, in fact, it was uh, almost four months ago to the day that I was here uh, with Bijou Jean launching this pavilion. Uh, it was the well, 8th of October. I can't believe where the last four months have gone, but here we are back in this wonderful pavilion. In fact, when I was here for the launch, it was a sim similar weather. I think God was smiling on us because, or Naomi was smiling on us because we have a beautiful day to have this, this wonderful event, which is part of the, the finishing events for this pavilion this season. We have a wonderful conga line of speakers today. <laughs> and I hope it's fast-paced and, and, and um, lots of um, awkward moments that really divulge the truth about what we think about this topic, which is cultivate. In fact, um, this is, the, as, as Robert mentioned, the first session of the theme for Emrelay, cultivate. And the others are play, pause and narrate. Uh, and I'll be, as, as mentioned earlier, hosting this event, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, there's eight speakers and we're going to have 15 minutes each. And Catherine's got the time. She's got a little bell next to her. She's got, if you hear bing, you've got one minute to go. So it's going to be pretty sharp and on, on time. And I think we're, we're slated to finish about 12.30 today. Um, eight speakers, 15 minutes each. And um, uh, the, the, uh, I'll try and wrap up at the very end and try and make some sense about all these conversations we have. There's a poignancy for me about being back in the park and talking open air in a public space. And uh, for those that you haven't visited Birrarong Ma on the other side, I very much relate this event and this, this place to Speaker's Corner, which operated from 1890 to about 1960, where we spoke open air without microphones like I have in front of me, face to face, eye to eye, with people interjecting and really um, uh, getting to the truth about what we think today about matters that care, that really mean something to us all. So I think this, this particular pavilion, which Rob mentioned, Bijoy Jane, um, is very much connected to place. And Bijoy talked about the idea about law, passing ideas by word from one to another. And, and very much this pavilion's about that law, about 
moving ideas, uh, both past and future, and expressing them personally. Also, I think uh, the idea of, of Bijoy connecting this building to place with the idea of water, which is the, the uh, well sunk into the middle of this pavilion, light, which is what we're seeing in a horizontal slot-like uh, viewplane around the perimeter of this pavilion and light coming through the oculus at, at the top. So I think there's very much a kind of a, a um, sense of place and a sense of, of trying to connect us to the land and cultivate an idea of, of connectedness. And I think the topic that we're going to talk about today, it very much reinforces what this pavilion's about. So um, I'd like to just go over and reiterate the agenda. Um, I believe it's, um, uh, if those who haven't read it, I think it's in the program that you might have in front of you. But I just want to set up what we're, what, we're here about to, what we're here to do today. We're going to look at the city as a place to nature and in turn ask the question, how do we create a civic space that nurtures its inhabitants? So it's very much about nurturing the inhabitants. And, and just to flesh that out a little bit more, can we as citizens be both productive and products of a city? How do we take responsibility for moulding its environment and the cultural fabric? So the session will explore the power of collective consciousness and how human infrastructure can grow and maintain a healthy coexistence. Melbourne's a resource of both edible and social opportunities. Through a myriad of interventions, all of us can acquire knowledge and develop skills that have longevity and an impact on our community. So I hope that kind of sets up the, the framework with which we're going to operate. And, um, I'll kick off with getting underway and, and invite Kate to the stage. And uh, Kate, come on up, we'll make ourselves at home. Perhaps uh, you go there. It's going to go this way, so I'll pop off the, the end. I'll pop off the end. Oh, it's like being in a bed and the little one said, <laughs> then you roll over. <laughs> so, um, now, uh, Kate. Um, Kate's a, a landscape architect, urban designer, and uh, I just learnt uh, uh, a young mother. Well, not so young, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Kate, uh, I guess uh, I'd be interested to know, kind of investigate the, 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 um, what makes a city able to be nurtured in, in, from your point of view. And, and um, I brought something along to get this conversation going. Ooh. <laughs> Kate's, Kate's um, uh, part of something called 3,000 Acres. For those of you who don't know about it, it's, it's um, Kate's trying to, amongst many other things that keep her busy in life, utilise all the leftover bits of land in Melbourne uh, to, to be, be productive. So it's very much about getting back to connecting to, to mother, mother Nature and, and to Earth. And um, part of that is not just cultivating it your own patch, but also the community and social aspects that come out of that. And um, I don't know about everyone else in the audience, but that's the way I make my spaghetti. I go to the supermarket and I buy uh, some organic whole peel tomatoes. And, um, and, and Which supermarket is go to Coles and buy your tomatoes? Yes, I thought you'd I like I think we'll this. have a little discussion about that later. Well, that's what I'm hoping to get to. <laughs> so I wondered how that sat with you, because that's the way I make my... My spaghetti bolognese. If justice truck over there, you can get your tomatoes from there next time. <laughs> so do you have a problem with, with me going to the supermarket and buying a can of peeled tomatoes, Kate? I don't have a problem with it. I think there's a better way to do it. So tell me, what's the better way? <laughs> um, although I have to say I do it all the time because it's convenient. So the city has to be designed in such a way that going to the supermarket that potentially doesn't treat the farmers in such a great way and doesn't um, think about the environmental consequences of the uh, nature of growing food um, in such a great way either. So 
if we can design the city to be a place where you can make different choices about how you purchase food or how you grow food, then it would be a much more nurturing environment if we're able to cult cultivate those opportunities to make a different decision that's just as convenient as going to the supermarket. And how do you do that in a, in a, in a city that's um, uh, very urban in its fabric um, and make a meaningful contribution to that when, when we've all got such busy lives, uh, we're working you know, eight hours plus a day, uh, and where do you find the time for that? And how does that, how does that work? Yeah. You have to make it easy and fun. And 3,000 Acres is all about trying to create opportunities for people who have busy lives and don't often have access to land to be able to grow food, to have that opportunity to um, get your hands dirty and make it much more of an enjoyable experience to grow your own food. So we do that by locating bits of underused space across the city and finding community groups that are interested in using those spaces. And it's really, really difficult actually to work out what people's motivations are to grow their own food because it does take a long time and it's actually really hard and I, I am a vegetable killer <laughs> so right, right. I have no illusions that this is the easy way but I tell you what it makes you happier and it makes you richer because it's quite cheap to do You've been working on this for quite a while. Yeah. I noticed um, it started a, de a decade ago, working with the Chelsea Flower and Garden Show mm. and getting exhibits and, and uh, trying to get some, some uh, I guess, immerse yourself in, in that, that competition-style um, horticulture. But, um, you know, uh, the relevance today is, is one that I'm interested in. You know, you talk about it helping our connectedness and our social aspects of life. Um, have you had any, any experience recently? And I know that you're involved with Neo Metro. That's not Neil Mitchell, the way you would say it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Lots of people were really confused when I was talking about Neo, Neo Metro. I have to say it in an Australian accent. Neo Metro. Yeah. <laughs> Neil Mitchell. And, and you worked on their uh, Newell Station project, yeah. um, which has got a lot of green in it. And I, I, I don't know um, whether everyone in the audience is familiar, but a, a lot of the recent... Um, residential apartment buildings in Melbourne now in, in really engaging with the green idea. And uh, I worry that it's very superficial and decoration. Mm. And um, uh, It has you know, been in the past. I think it's getting to be a little bit more of a honest approach now. But I mean... Because uh, vegetables, tomatoes that are wilting are not that good to look at, are they? No. Um, and that's... The gardens that we implement are, have management uh, regimes in place, so they're well looked after. Um, but I'm very conscious at the beginning, we worked with developers purely as greenwashing because we wanted to make um, the idea of growing fruit and vegetables in the city a normal thing. But we did that knowing that potentially it wasn't that honest, but we were looking for behaviour change in the future and we're seeing that now. It's, it's, a, it's the long game, the long conversation that we're trying to have. And the idea is to create a city that's equitable for people, no matter how much money you have, no matter what type of housing that you live in. You know, I'm very lucky to live in a house with a garden, so I can choose to have solar panels on my roof and collect my own water and grow my own food. But in the past, I've lived in apartments and I've not had that opportunity. And the city isn't designed in a way to, to let you make those decisions. So it's not fair. You know, I couldn't bring up my family in this city now because the type of apartment, three bedroom apartments don't really exist. And I, I don't have the opportunity to grow food and to collect my own energy and collect my own water. And you should. That should be a complete human right. You should be able to do that no matter where you live. You should be able to have your friends over for dinner in a... And you should be able to fit a table in your apartment. 
And there's, there's moves with the new apartment guidelines to allow that to happen in the city. But Melbourne needs to make big decisions now. Melbourne's changing. We're so lucky. There was little, a little family of ducks just walking over there. You know, how lucky are we to live in this fabulous city with na opportunity to hang out in nature right next to the CBD? But as the population's booming, we're going to see 5 million people coming to this city in the next 10 years. And what is Melbourne's going to have to make some really big decisions. How do we want to live in the city? We need to be able to have access to nature and we need to be able to make decisions on how we want to live, no matter where we live and no matter how much money we've got. Very well said. And, 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 and <laughs> No, no, it's excellent. <laughs> you can relax now. That's off your chest. Ah. <laughs> no, um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether, whether um, that... that, that um, human need about grounding yourself is a phys physiological thing. Yeah, it is. Is, is there something that, that uh, we're, we're, takes stress out of our body when we get soil under our nails? Yeah, I mean, I think people often forget that human beings are actually a species alongside cats and dogs and birds and everything else. And we're not here to dominate the natural environment. We're here to be part of it. And we have to really remember that. You know, we have to live in harmony with nature and harmony with the environment. And we don't do that just now. It's interesting that Bijou talks about... Um, the, the philosophy behind this pavilion being uh, the, the uh, genus loci, or, or grounding yourself to place. Uh, he also talks about uh, law being not only something passed on by, by word, but the, the intangible uh, space between a bird's eye and its bill, or a snake's eye and its nostril. It's that sort of area that, that it's, you're aware of the whole time, but you can't quite put your hand on. So um, I'm very interested in, in the idea of this. My son, um, just last year, went to um, central Victoria to grow a little patch of garlic the size of this, this stage. Um, not because it was a financial uh, need, but because he felt that he wasn't getting enough, enough uh, connection to Mother Nature. Mm. And I think there's a change in the community. I, I don't know, is there much engagement from your perspective about people picking up on... on and and is, is there a groundswell growing about genuine interest in, in, in this area? Or is, it, or is it still window dressing? It's not window dressing, but I think if you're lucky enough to have time to be able to think about it, it's a certain demographic that's interested in it. Um, and we need to make it part of everybody's life. And I mean, there's so much we can learn from the original inhabitants of Australia and how that how the land was cultivated then. You know, we used to grow uh, Murnong across central the central desert of Australia. That was all cultivated because the appropriate crops were chosen for the appropriate place. So we need to think about Australia and what's appropriate for this landscape and what we should be doing. That conversation, you know, is not really being had just now. And Kate, is it, is it a, a matter of apartment buildings or houses putting gardens in? Uh, and we're seeing some, uh, the Commons and, and Nightingale and of course the near, near Metro development in Newell Station having vegetable gardens on the roof as a, as a, as a, a new type. Or, is, yeah, or, I mean, is, or does every apartment have its own garden on its patio? I mean, how does that, how, what's the physical manifestation of this idea? Oh, it's lots of different things. There isn't one solution. I think it, the planning scheme could do a lot to help. So the planning scheme could say there has to be, um, you have to have access to some area of green space to grow food or just to have connection to nature. That doesn't really exist at the moment. Um, there should be really great uh, municipal and regional scale open space planning so that you're in always in a certain distance of, um, of some type of open space. So it's, there isn't a one-stop a, a one solution to this. It's, it's multifaceted. And, and not everybody's going to want to grow their own food. It's, it takes a long time and you need, a, you need to be good at it. Unlike me, I kill everything. <laughs> um, but, but you need opportunity to meet your neighbours and have the opportunity to collaborate with people. And you might be good at cooking, they might be good at growing. So it's, it's fostering those connections and working out how to do that in lots and lots of different ways.
You need to get into the ear of the planning minister, Richard Wynne. Yes. And make this make this a, a mandatory requirement for all Bloody you. I am doing Oh, you that. are? No. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, Kate, what's, what's, what's the future for this? Where are you going with it? You've got the 3,000 acres going, which is, which is born out of the US 956 or 256. 596. 596. And um, you can see the way New York's changing and, and becoming more grounded. Uh, and, uh, I was just wondering, what, where are we going forward with this? Well, we're doing lots of different things at the moment with 3,000 acres. So we're tackling the planning scheme. We're um, lobbying the minister for particular changes to zoning and overlays and um, the way that apartment guidelines are written. We're working with communities to work out exactly what it is they want to do um, and how we can make it easier for people to get their hands dirty. We're working with lots of different big landowners like um, Melbourne Water are being great. Vic, uh, Vic Track and Vic Roads are being good now. It's taken a long time to get to this place. Um, we're just working out how to create change because the way that we've done it so far isn't creating enough change quickly enough. So I don't know. I don't know what the next step is. But one thing we do need to do is become financially sustainable, and that's something we can talk to Catherine about. <laughs> <laughs> There's the plug. <laughs> As part of Open House Melbourne, which I'm involved with, uh, there's a great interest in uh, rooftop gardens. We have to do a tour each year, and it's oversubscribed each year. And from my, my observation, there, there's uh, people are wondering how to go about it. Yeah. Uh, and there's some great retrofits, but they, they should become part of... Well, the... in, in France, it's law. You have to... Um, every new building has to either have uh, energy production or a, a garden on top of it. We were just having this conversation, actually. In Australia, because of the weather, um, you don't need to have a real load-bearing roof. So lots of the rooftops across the city couldn't hold the weight of, of any soil or any people. I was up the Eureka Tower yesterday with my mum looking across the city just thinking, oh my goodness, all that space. So much space and such fabulous views. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, it's, it's putting planning regimes in place that makes it law where if you're building a new development, it has to have either a productive element, whether it's energy or food growing, or it has to be painted white to reflect the heat, you know, just sensible, easy things. It could have a sedum, a really low intensity roof garden on it as well. Yeah. And it's just about well, one minute to go. Is it, is it just about, you know, cultivating a, a um, edible garden or, is it, or is, it, uh, is it also about greening up the city? Oh, it's about both. It's absolutely, I mean, the climate's changing, no doubt about it. We need to green the city for a whole heap of different reasons about cooling, connection, m making it nice to look at. There's been research done that says it, your eyes appreciate complexity and that complexity can really only be delivered through the natural environment, not through the built environment. So it actually makes you feel happier to be in a natural environment. Um, so it's also about community connection, cultivating community. It's... There's so many benefits to having a green city and one of them is about edible benefits and the myriad of, uh, of reasons why that's a good idea. But it's also about climate, people, animals, you know, the world. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. That's fantastic. Give Kate a, a, please a round of applause. And you can take the tin tomatoes just in case you keep killing your vegetables. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so we can have the uh, next speaker. Please. Um, Do I go here? You go here. So who goes on that I'll one? Go over here. Are you going that one? I go there. Catherine Brown. Hi. Back again. <laughs> yes. Okay. 
Well, am I just starting now? Yeah, you, now you're, you're doing the interview. I, I should have given you a hat so you know what was going on. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Kate. Um, so you're in the business of cultivating ideas. Mm. Um, so lots and lots of people have lots of ideas all the time, and some of them will make it to you to try and pitch their idea. So tell us a bit about how you cultivate, or firstly, how do you spot a good idea? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe just take one step back. Um, as a foundation, we can't fund everything that would be great to fund in Melbourne, so we have to kind of really focus on what the big issues are at that moment. So, you know, we're focusing on uh, homelessness and affordable housing, sustainable Melbourne, which is about food, water, um, the transition to a low-carbon future, and also community resilience, uh, and also youth um, employment, and actually older people's employment. So within that... Mm -hmm. Um, good ideas come from lots of places. Um, I'm always out listening to what's going on. Whenever I'm asked to speak somewhere or be part of a discussion, I just about always say yes so that I hear what's happening. And, of course, a lot of people come to the foundation with their ideas. And, and probably most interestingly, we've started a couple of programs where we actually fund the whole development of ideas. So with Social Traders, which is a social enterprise support organisation. We've been a partner uh, with them for quite a few years now. We fund their Crunch program, and that's where people bring their social enterprise idea. They develop it through mentoring and coaching with Social Traders, and then they have a big pitch event where they pitch their idea to us and other foundations and uh, private funders. And we've also done that with the Seed Challenge around employment for young people with disabilities. And we're about to... We've got, I've got a couple of my team working on one in relation to green jobs so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when people come to you with these ideas do you suggest that I mean having had an idea with 3,000 acres and gone through the process of trying to make it a reality we had a lot of great support through mentoring programs and things like that but we had to have a lot of passion and a lot of energy to put into that in the first place so what kind of advice do you give people when they have a seed of an idea to get that happening to make it a reality okay so first of all um, the idea itself will be nothing unless it can be implemented so that whole part of business planning working out how it might um, actually roll out what the funding might be what sort of advisors you need um, all of that's an important process and then you need the leadership and the capability in your team to make it happen. I mean, that, that is something that I certainly look at and we most foundations look at, you know, is this team going to be able to get their idea from here to there? So I think you're just on the journey with 3,000 Acres. It's a great project. You told me you haven't got DGR status yet. For anyone who doesn't know, that's the tax status you need to get tax deductible donations. So maybe we'll have a chat because um, underneath all this, I'm actually a lawyer who's spent too many years in charity law. So. Excellent. <laughs> Sounds great. So tell us about some of the projects that you've really loved on your journey so far. Okay. Well, there, there is one project relating to Cultivate that I really love uh, that we funded, and that is the food print project at the Victorian Echo Innovation Lab at Melbourne Uni. Um, not many foundations fund food, you know, food rescue, food security, and I see that as an area that we can really make a big difference and we're, we're doing more and more. So the Vale, which is the Victorian Echo In Innovation Lab, they've done a major study about Melbourne's food bowl and where our food comes from. 
and what the challenges are. So 41% of our food comes from Melbourne and the peri-urban fringe, and that is at risk from um, you know, developing valuable farming land, climate change particularly, uh, you know, and also water. So the project is wonderful because it actually shows us um, what we can do to make, at, you know, really to um, protect our food bowl. Yes. We're in a great position, Melbourne. I don't know that we realise enough. Well, I don't think 82% of our vegetables comes from just in our area. I don't think people understand how valuable that land around Werribee and Casey is and how important it is to have the urban growth boundary set in stone because once that valuable farmland is gone, it's gone for good. All the soil is gone. It's never coming back. Mm. And it is very rare. That that, out, that Casey Cardinia, that's very ancient peak, um, peat soil. So that, that actually is really valuable. And I think I heard the other day that London had its boundary set in 1936. Can you imagine? Yeah, the urban growth boundary in <laughs> Melbourne's changed, I think, five times over the last 10 years. Yeah, so I made those numbers up, by the way, but it's changed a lot. I <laughs> <laughs> should have said that. <laughs> but I, I actually do think we do need to stop, as you said, and say, all right, we're from here. Because even when it comes to affordable housing, we need to think about, you know, putting that in the inner city, in the middle city, near where services are, you know, obviously near where green space, near, near with transport. And we need to think, what is this city that we have here? And we, we need are... to think about what affordability means, because you might be able to afford a house on the edge, but you need to take into account the cost of having two cars, commuting to your job, not being close to public transport and having to drive to the supermarket. We, we actually funded a, one, of my, one of those great little projects with some wonderful young engineers from Swinburne who wanted to add transport into their assessment of affordable housing and where it should be located. And no one had ever come to us with that before. So they're doing that at the moment. So yeah, I love that project. Yeah, it does make sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, so what about how we live in the city? Do you have any projects underway that are thinking about what it means in the context of Melbourne changing so much and the pressures that we're going to see with population growth and environmental change? Is there anything, any little projects that are having a little seed of an idea that you might be able to talk about? There, there are many projects. <laughs> um, one project, we, we funded the Feed Melbourne campaign with Fair Share and Leader for six years, so we put one and a half million into that project and raised a lot to match that. Um, but we've been thinking a lot about what sustainable food systems for Melbourne mean, so we're trying to add that into the work we're doing. So we're actually looking at a project, still developing, but um, looking at all the kitchen gardens connected with 21 different public housing estates and particularly, you know, how can you get... Um, education about food and nutrition and so on so that um, and that can go much further so we're very interested in that whole area of sustainable Melbourne yeah. in terms of food we've got there's a lot of different smaller projects actually there's one I love which is with Marist Youth Services um, and that's with homeless kids and kids at risk of homelessness and they've got a garden and a kitchen garden, and, and since getting the kids really involved in learning about um, food and growing, they've got a much higher attendance rate at school. So, oh. yeah, it has lots of spin-off um, yeah. effects. And being able to quantify um, mm. that with research is just fabulous. Mm. I'm interested in the motivation behind people doing interesting projects, and it's often a little bit hard to keep your motivation high when you hit barrier after barrier mm. and you're seeing these crazy global events happening. 
do you have any advice for people, for community leaders or people who have put a lot of time and energy into their projects who might be getting a little bit tired? Uh, just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was very fortunate and, and went to a funders initiative alongside COP21, which is a climate change conference in Paris, you know, just 14 months ago. And I met a lot of other foundations working in climate change. And I saw what all the mayors and, um, um, you know, governments in other um, cities were doing. So I'm very happy we've got, um, you know, Resilient Cities program here, which the Rockefeller Foundation funds. Um, but also I, I realised there were things like food that just weren't getting enough attention and community resilience. So that's another area we're looking at. You know, what are the health impacts of climate change? Heat waves have a very bad impact on older people. Um, you know, there's more disasters. There's a, there's a need for us to think more about disaster recovery and things like that. So it is a bit depressing. But at the other hand, when you're in a position like we are where we can do something, I think we all have to um, take action. Yeah. Be very, you know, we just need to be have a positive perspective. And regardless of what's going on at a structural level, there's so many community level projects happening and so much positive mm. that I guess it's telling those stories and letting people know that things are changing and good things are happening. There was I think there's something I read recently was uh, I think something like 90% of farmers know that climate change has affected them. Mm -hmm. So I think when you get that sort of level of understanding then you get an opportunity to say, okay, you know, how will we respond? Yeah. Um, do you, what about the opportunities that philanthropic funding gives as opposed to council grants and other types of funding? Do you feel like you're freer? Yeah. We, we sometimes um, can describe ourselves as the venture capital for the not-for-profit sector. So we're, we're a pot of money that is not... We're not um, government and we're not business. So we, we can create a space where people with ideas can come and we can test things and we can take some 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 risks and 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 see whether new ideas and new solutions are possible. So yeah, we we are in a very special place. And the other thing we do fund is capacity building. So organisations that are working on the things we're um, interested in, we fund them through the Thrive program over three years just to keep going and doing their great work. That sounds like something we should do. Yes. <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about Melbourne and the state of play just now. Mm. And I think Melbourne has some big decisions to make about how we live, about housing and green space and access to food and all those things. But personally, what do you think makes Melbourne great? One minute. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no well, pressure. I, I personally... We do this um, study called Vital Signs every couple of years. It's done by community foundations around the world, but we look at the vital signs of Melbourne. And one of the, there, are, there are obviously issues with employment and climate change and homelessness, but the positives are we have a very high participation rate in sport and the arts. And I think that that's a very important sort of part of Melbourne. And, and I think the, the multicultural... Um, dimension to Melbourne is just fantastic. I, I think we really have to treasure it and, you know, and welcome everybody. And, and I'm lucky in that I li live near the Yarraben Park and the Darabin Creek. So I feel very fortunate that I am near some of those green areas. Mm. So that uh, it's amazing how often I say when I'm walking the dogs, I just love that this is so near the city. Yeah. That's yeah. something special about Melbourne. Yeah, we're very lucky. <laughs> Good timing. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. <laughs> you give Catherine and Kate a hand. So, uh, next I think the next speaker is Amy.
Okamomi. Thank you. Okay, so welcome Amy. Amy Mullins is from Executive Director of the Women's Leadership Institute of Australia. Yep. So there's lots of fascinating things we can talk about. So first of all, how should we as a city nurture and cultivate women leaders? Just a small question. Yeah. Um, and I know you've got a great interest in, in young women and, and so do I, but I'm also very interested in older women who haven't had the potential to um, be leaders, particularly in, in business um, and government that they might have been. And I'm fascinated to see older women starting to take a bit of a leadership role. So perhaps from both ends, young and old, that would be great. Wow, that's so hard. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, and how do we cultivate them as a city? Yes. Okay. All right, let me think. Just what have you been doing to, to work on that? Yeah, okay. Well, I think you, I agree. It needs to, You need to focus on all of the spectrum of age and um, ability and background and potential because, um, as you say, there's a lot of older women who have, you know, may have taken time out of the workforce for various reasons, mainly because they probably had to and they might have been the primary caregiver mm. to the children if they have children. So... Um, we focus on women already in leadership and we focus on women who we want to get into leadership. So if you're looking at um, younger people, one of our programs which focuses on young women is um, the Pathways to Politics program for women and that's at the Melbourne School of Government. And um, the Truella Foundation uh, and Women's Leadership Institute, but the Truella Foundation is the funder of that program, um, which I also work on behalf of as well as at the Women's Leadership Institute and the Women's Leadership Institute co-runs and um, advises that program at the university. And the thing that we do with that is actually it's a really practical um, course for women to learn how to be a politician. So um, there really wasn't a program like that at all in Australia, not to the scale um, that this is. And uh, it's based on this program at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School in Boston called um, From Harvard Square to the Oval Office. And that was about getting um, American women into, you know, the Congress and the Senate. And as we would know, like it's, they have such poor low figures in terms of women's participation. Um, which is very surprising because, like, American women are very confident and they're very forthright. In, I'm generalising, but the, one, the ones that I've met who are passionate about politics really are already have a kind of... They're ahead of the game. So, so what are the hidden barriers, then, that, that this program works on? How do you yeah. transform someone? <laughs> well, everyone's at different stages as well. So I guess with the women that we see, or the last program which we did in 2016, that was the pilot year, and we had women from every single party. So we had like the Greens, um, the ALP, the Liberal Party, we had an independent. I don't think we had a national, so that maybe that's one thing we didn't have. Um, and then we had speakers from every spectrum. But the things that we saw were that some women were thinking about it, but they were never you know, they dipped their toe in the water and then they just kind of retreated really quickly because the environment was very masculine and male dominated and there was a lot of um, argument for argument's sake kind of behaviour and women kind of tended to get put off by that because they're really pragmatic and they're like why am I going to waste my time sitting here talking to you round and round in circles when I could be out actually doing something um, so that was part of the reason why then you had other women who were already in parties and were heavily involved in the machinery of it and were actually dealing and grappling with the um, the and factional kind of stuff that happened 
in that and also prevents women really from participating because if you don't have if you can't pull the numbers your way and it really is a numbers game then you know you're not going to get even close to pre-selected so there's all those kind of really structural barriers within the organization of a party machine and then there's other things like funding and fundraising and networking and you know getting yourself out there because uh, some of the women that we see, they don't want to kind of be out there and like, here, I'm a product and I'm selling myself. And, you know, like it seems a bit disingenuous to a lot of people to be doing that. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we kind of help them get past is, well, politics is a very unique game. And, you know, you do have to sometimes be a bit contrary to what you would think is appropriate behaviour. So, And as one of our speakers said, um, he said that uh, it's the only sector in Australia that has the most poor governance structure, if any governance structure at all, or one that at least is a, a functioning governance structure. So there's a lot of things that just wouldn't fly in corporate Australia that happens in politics. So that, that's, that's probably... There are lots of barriers, I guess, yeah. is my answer to getting young women elected and staying in politics. Mm. And what about um, having an influence on public policy? So how do you nurture the women's voice to come through? You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the urban sort of boundary and we've talked about food and housing and a lot of these things are very dear to women's hearts. So how do you get more of a voice in the public space? Um, having a role, like a you, I mean, anyone can have a voice, that's true, um, but it's easier when you have a reason, a public reason to be having your voice. So if you're on a board of a not-for-profit, you can go out there more and say, well, I speak on behalf of, and this is what we think about this issue. So it kind of is more of an accelerator of someone's views. But I mean, that said, democratisation of you know opinion and information means that anyone can really go out there and have an opinion. And if you actually have something good to say and interesting and it's you know new people will sit up and take notice of you and you can really build a profile around it and that's you know something that I did a billion years ago um, but you know it I think that there's a lot of opportunities for women they just need to grasp them and there are lots of women grasping them the the reason the other reason why people may like women aren't as visible is not necessarily because they're not putting themselves forward it's because there's a backlash effect when women are putting themselves forward so if you're in a male-dominated environment and men are seen as the leaders and the authoritative um, experts on everything and that's our unconscious bias at play then when a woman comes out and says well actually this is how it is and here's why people start saying oh well that's your opinion and you're getting a bit emotional about that and you know whatever you know you kind of this it's like it's that whole it's the Simone de Beauvoir thing about you know the universal and the other and it's still at play right now um, and it may you know be a little bit more subtle and not as overt as we saw you know 50 years ago but it's still definitely there and it means that you know if a woman does put herself out there and then she gets a you know head chopped off for it well you know she's not going to put herself back out there again is she so so, so how do you, um, through your program at the Leadership um, Institute, sort of help people deal with that, prepare for that? Or, I mean, you must have people coming to you and saying, you know, I can't go on. So what, what strategies do you give them? Um, we have... Actually, most people say, yeah, I want to do it, but I just don't know how. Right. 
And because media really seems like a very confusing world and it seems very fickle and you don't know what they want and you don't want to be compromised. You want to make sure that you're still saying what you believe and want to say. Um, And I guess it's really about arming them with information. So one of the prime example is Q&A. It's just a woman's worst nightmare. It's barely, I found any barely any women who desperately want to go on Q&A and <laughs> feel very confident about doing that because it's just, you know, live TV. You don't know what where the questions are coming from. So we had Q&A producer come and say, this is the whole process from start to finish of how you will go if, if you're on the panel. And these are the various strategies that we have suggested for you to deal with these questions when they arise. And it's just amazing. Like these women just go, oh, okay, no worries. And then they're like, sign me up. Um, so, you know, there's, there's really no lack of women wanting to do it. It's just um, that they need the information because they're not part of these boys club networks that operate very informally um, where men support each other and tell each other and introduce, you know, oh, you should talk to my, my friend Peter, you know, he has great views on this too. Um, you know, women are great at supporting women, but when you've got this really powerful network of men supporting men, um, it's much harder for women to get a word in. So it's it's also, yeah, it's networking, it's information, um, but really I think the confidence is there. They just need to actually have all the facts at hand. Okay, so maybe if we just take a slightly more positive (laughs) spin, um, what do you think are the biggest achievements um, by women that have impacted on the cultural or political fabric of Melbourne? Jeez. I I mean, really thought about these. (laughs) I did. We've got the right to vote in 1908. Yeah, well, Australia was doing pretty pretty well compared to every other country, actually. Um, Jeez. That's really hard. I think there's a lot of great women doing great things. We just don't hear about them as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in Melbourne in particular, if I'm making it local, well, someone that springs to mind is like Joan Kerner because she, some people might not agree with her, what she did was as Premier and various issues, but she was one of those women who supported other women till her last breath and just had an arm in everything and you know she just she'd reply to you on an email if you sent a really great newsletter she'd tell you how great the newsletter was you know she's just so generous and her spirit of um, leadership and generosity and um, you know she just she didn't discriminate you know she was just constantly supporting other women that's they're those kind of women leaders I see every day in my job is um, you know really generous leaders so I mean she's not with us anymore but um I'm just trying to like name people off the top of my head but yeah I I just I don't know in your field as well in philanthropy there's just so many amazing women doing great things but they probably don't get that much credit no that's true we're we're sort of the unsung uh fabric of Melbourne aren't we yeah exactly (laughs) keep keep the uh not-for-profit sector and some ideas happening so when you think about a sustainable city um what do you think about from a women leadership perspective? What you know, what could be the three things we could we could do now to make to really get a bit of a vision for the future happening? That's the bell. That's the end. Yeah. Um, that's gone so quickly. Um, what can women do? Yeah. Well, I actually think it's about what can men do. Excellent. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, because the men are the reason why the women aren't getting anywhere. <laughs> no offence, guys. But no, it really is about having equal parenting if you have children. It's about enabling men to be able to step up and take leave as much as women take leave. It's about um, seeing uh, men in, yeah, men supporting women to go and do their thing and making sure that their pursuits and passions are as equal as the men's. So I actually think it's less about what women can do and what more what men can do and it's not in a negative way it's actually empowering because there is so much men can do they probably just don't realize it and then they're in a really special position because when they do um, advocate for women and say actually that's not good enough and women should be able to do this people sit up and listen and much more than if a woman said it so in that sense I'm really like an example just last night I just want to tell this I went to the AFL women's match And it was men and women side by side in that crowd, 50-50. And they were just as rabidly supporting the teams that were women as they would have supported the men. And it was just an electric atmosphere and really made me go, well, this is exactly what gender equality is. So... That's, that's great. Actually, we, we watched a bit of that and my 15-year-old son said, oh, yeah, my sports teacher's in, um, in the Collingwood team. We're going, you didn't tell us that before now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Please thank Amy and Catherine. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, Russell, coming up. So this is Russell Shields, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Hello. Welcome to this wonderful space. Yeah, and I just love that the sun's really properly out now. So, And it, hoping the ducks are going to come back because I thought that was so gorgeous. <laughs> it was a good scene, wasn't it? Yeah, beautiful. Um, just want to draw everyone's attention to the food justice truck, which is a perfect segue into my interview with Russell. Um well, what a beautiful truck. Not that I, you know, get really excited about automobiles, but this is a pretty nice truck. Um, how, Russell, you are the manager of the Food Justice Truck, which is an Asylum Seeker Resource Centre program. Um, how did this particular project come about? Because I know that you already have a, a deep passion for food and accessibility to food and food security with the other initiatives you've co-founded and been part of. Um, what drove you to be part of this particular program? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm hoping no from the council is going to give me a ticket while I'm there. Too. It's a little bit dodgy. Jen's promised me that I'm allowed to park it there. So, um, But yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. For my background, has been about improving access to fresh food for particularly people experiencing disadvantage. And I spent many years at Second Bite working on food rescue. And in that time at Second Bite, we delivered a lot of food to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centres, particularly to Patrick. I remember their old venue in Jeffcott Street very well. And as I sort of grew in that role and looked at um, my future positions, what I was doing, we look at who is the most vulnerable. When we look at food security, people seeking asylum are by far the most food insecure. So we talk about the Australian community, about 5% of us run out of food each year and unable to purchase more. We know that figure is very conservative. It's a lot higher, particularly in certain demographics or in certain geographic regions. When we talk about people seeking asylum, we're at 90% of people seeking asylum last year ran out of food, were unable to purchase more. So I'm still unsure what is the motivation, what drives me for that. But when I look at, well, if I want to support 
the people that are most food insecure, absolutely that's the demographic I want to be working with. And Patrick from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre spoke to me one day when the truck had raised, through a crowdfunding campaign, $150,000. So the truck, and it's important to remember that, while it is a lovely truck and is designed well, it's, um, it's a community truck. So on the back door of that truck, there's 927 names of the individuals that donated through that crowdfunding campaign that enables that truck to exist. Um, with that funding came one staff position. And when I saw the job advertised, it sort of, you know, when you tick the boxes, I looked at, you know, what my skill sets were and the values I have in the organisations I'd like to work for and the cause I wanted to support. And then I looked at the role, it just sort of made a really good fit. So I spoke to Patrick and went through the process of applying and was very fortunate to, um, to get the role. Well, we're glad you got the role because you're a very great advocate for food security and asylum seekers. Um, and I guess delving more deeply into the area of food, because it does really, as we've already seen, relate to Cultivate so well. What is it about food that's just so important? I mean, it's not just about being nourished and having nutrition and actually not feeling hunger. What else is it about food that's so important? And I mean, is it is it a right? And are there other cultural and social elements relating to food that drive your work? Yeah, absolutely. I think Kate alluded to this earlier. This, you know, when you talk about food and, and even Caswell, this broad spectrum of food and what it um, what it means to everybody. But we can start with that human right. So absolutely, food is a basic human right. So we need to often think of it through a human rights perspective that we all should have access to fresh, affordable, nutritious food as a human right. Then when we talk about the power of food to create positive social change, because food is connection and food is dignity. So particularly in the food relief sector, I feel how we provide for people in need who don't have the opportunity to choose food and they rely on us as a community to make those choices, then we have an absolute responsibility to ensure that those choices are dignified, that they're healthy and they're nutritious. And then what we do if we do that, we're showing people that we care. If I give someone a cold pie and a packet of chips and say, oh, you know, that's great, that's gonna help you because you're a bit hungry, I'm telling them what they're worth. You're worth a cold pie and a pack of chips. If I provide a fresh, healthy meal in an environment that's got, um, you know, beautiful art, beautiful community setting and a wonderful space that's warm, that's welcoming, that has great conversation and connectedness, all of a sudden that food becomes so much more than just the meal they're eating. It becomes this community. So food has this, you know, we need three meals a day, seven days a week to survive, absolutely. It's a human right that we should all have access to it, but it's this amazing opportunity to create the community that we all want to live in. And there's this, obviously, there's a social ritual around food, which we were talking about just before when we're not on a microphone, and, you know, that it's important to have people around a table, you know, communing and speaking and sharing stories and, um, you know, having access to particular foods that were part of their home homelands. Um, and, you know, when we're looking at asylum seekers, as you were saying, there's a difference between refugees and asylum seekers. The asylum seekers are still seeking asylum and haven't been approved yet to be citizens of a particular 
particular country, but they're here. Um, let's talk about those people. Um, what exactly, who are they? Who are your customers? And how are you cultivating this sense of um, community and bonds through your food truck? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so we currently have, across Australia, uh, it's about 27,000 people seeking asylum, about 12,000 in Victoria, from a range of countries. And that has certainly changed over the, the recent years. So the truck, while we're trying to provide for that broad community of people seeking asylum, we need to factor in the different cultural and different countries people are coming from. At the moment, the locations where we take the truck, the majority of the customers are from Iran, actually. Where two or three years ago, we get a lot more Sudanese and Somali, sort of African communities coming through the humanitarian program and seeking asylum. A lot more from Iran. And we're just starting to see the new Syrian arrivals, um, particularly out of Thomastown and at Dallas, our sites on, on the Tuesday. But the Iranian community see food, and I, I think I said it too, I wish that um, in some way the Australians and my friends and family that would see food in the way they see food. So their average spend per head is about $21 at the truck, which through the 75% discount, now 60%, I can talk about that later, um, that's about $80 worth of food. So the predominantly women who are shopping are buying significant amounts of fruit and veg. So 85% of everything we sell on the truck is fruit and veg. So they're shopping, like I'm seeing these bags, all these boxes of food I'm going wow and we're talking to them about it. again food creates a conversation so their natural diet is far healthier and far better for them than I think our Australian diet is and the way they use the fruit and veggies is very different they see it very differently to us when they see boxes of oranges and parsley and carrots they they're seeing juices and smoothies and stews. They're not seeing, oh, okay, there's one thing I could do with that carrot or there's one thing I could do with the orange. We did an evaluation project last year with a, through a photo voice method, which enabled the participants to take photos of the food and then provide a story about that food. And what I found fascinating was the photos weren't of what we may think a dinner, you may think of meal, oh, okay, what did they do for the dinner? What I saw was breakfast smoothies, lunch snacks, afternoon snacks, meals for the family, and then late night snacks with the fruit as well. Mm. So they see the food across a whole day, where we often, I think, um, and I say we, as a generalisation of, of um, the Australian community, might just see the one meal. And all that was fascinating, the way, not only the way they embed healthy, nutritious food into their diets, but the way they use the produce and all of the produce. So their waste is very minimal. From the project as well, we found they were wasting very little food. Where, and I know at home, you sort of, oh, you know, when you're, when you're any bit of food wasted and spending many years a second bite, it's a, certainly a passion of mine, you, you feel wrong when you're throwing the food out. They have very little waste of the food. They're using up every single element. And I think that's something that... One helps us provide the right types of food. So we know that on the truck each time we go out, there's an empty crate with a sign saying, what would you like in here? So the customers can help us provide the right types of food and introduce foods that they're wanting rather than foods we think that they want. 
What are some of those ones? What's the most interesting request you've been getting that may you may not have even heard of the particular ingredient or food before? Well, one thing I'm learning, I'm, I'm becoming good with my, my Persian um, and in the way of the fruit and vegetables. So the most interesting words I get around the grains and the legumes. So the fruit and veggies are relatively similar. With some of the African communities, we get a lot of okra, um, certainly a lot of the chilies, and especially the fresh herbs, a variety of the fresh herbs, lots of requests for dill. So dill is something, I know my partner Katie loves dill on the salmon, but it's not something we buy a lot of. But every Tuesday we'll do 30 bunches of dill, absolutely. And I never had it on the truck early. Um, but the, the beans, so we have to spend a lot of time with the phone and they're trying to describe some of the legumes um, and simple little black-eyed beans, but that's a very different, in, in Persian, I can't even want to even try and pronounce what it is in Persian. Um, but it took quite a while one day with one of the ladies to go through and describe what type of grain they were looking for and then how I could source that grain for them. So that's certainly where we see a lot of variety. Okay, and um, just in terms of cultivation and your own self in this city, um, what makes you light up and cultivate yourself? And if you weren't doing this, would you be doing something else that cultivates you? Oh, thanks for that one, Amy. Um, I've got two young boys, five and seven, and I think when I talk about food, I think there's nothing more beautiful in the world than seeing children eat or throw or <laughs> spill or create havoc around the house. So seeing them, there's this boundless energy that children have and... I had children quite late and the inspiration of watching them bound out in the morning and just charge into a day and at the end of the night I'm like, can you go to sleep? And they're like, we want more. So I think that certainly gives me sort of inspiration for what I'm doing, seeing that energy from children. And then when you see the resilience of the people we're supporting, like these people, our government is fighting to the bottom how we treat people with psychic. It is appalling, the policies we're implementing. And they walk into the centre and they walk up to the truck and they're beaming and they're smiling and they've got the kids and they're talking about food and they're happy and you're like, you know, I'm white, middle-aged man, I've got these opportunities, you know, endless. Um, life's easy. And then you see them bounding up and you think, wow, and I'm worried about, oh, I've got to go to work today or something. So that's always a motivation for me. Yeah. Thank you very much, Russell. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Uh, Wendy's up next. Come up, Wendy. Seems to go a lot quicker when you're up here than when you're sitting down there. Is that everyone else felt that as well? Is that... <laughs> Welcome, Wendy. Welcome. And I'll start with quickly. Wendy, who are you and what brings you here today and what is ID Australia? ID is a, I'm very short so I might have to do this, it is a British fashion publication that was launched in Australia a couple of years ago and I think a lot of people probably think of, you know, it's fashion, it's just about clothes but it's actually really interested in the ideas of young people, championing, championing young people, looking at our immediate community and our larger community and kind of looking at the ways that I suppose the ideas that percolate between us and in our lives can be explored in this publication and on this massive platform. And I guess also as a way of we can 
both celebrate things that are happening at the moment, but also I think a lot about how we can form like a time capsule of what's important about for my generation, for Gen Y, for young women, for young men, for young kids, and kind of, I don't know, paint a picture of that. So as a, I guess as a web-based platform, mm -hmm. how do you have that challenge where we talk about cultivate, that cultivated engagement and a community through a technological platform? How do you face that challenge and how do you do that? Well, I guess for me, I think a lot about the platform and the fact of, so I've got this website that I'm in control of and we have all these eyes on it and all these things that we look at. And it's my responsibility to not only, I guess, as I said, champion ideas, but also distill things in the wider community and that my friends are talking about, that I hear people talking about in the real world and then use this as kind of like a microphone. I know we often talk about this idea that not everyone has a voice and not everyone has the privilege to be able to get up every day, go online, have people listen to them. From my point of view, it's kind of insane that someone is a 29-year-old woman can speak to all these people. So it's a way of using that microphone to amplify, I guess, the priorities of the people around me and the people that are coming to the site. And also to speak for people who don't get up every day and get to go and write on a website. Hmm. And in that, I guess, there's a curation of hmm. the site. So what sort of for you and your role, what's that process? You know, when you think, um, you talk about the challenges and what you want on the site, how do you curate that? What's the process of curating the site at the moment? What do you go through? It's kind of interesting because, I mean, it's a human nature thing that you just think about what are you interested in? And there are things that I have my priorities and things that I, you know, catch my eye in the newspaper. So a lot of it is obviously personal, things that I'm personally interested in, but a lot of the challenge is also taking yourself out of it and I guess depositioning yourself in your own job. And I know at the moment we've been doing all these kind of roundups and we've been really trying to identify who is like an ID reader. What does an ID reader look like? How old are they? What are the magazines do they read? What do they give, like, what do they care about? So there's a lot of looking, not at myself, but looking at, you know, at the moment where like, it's probably a girl. There's a good chance that she's queer. Maybe she lives in the inner city. She's at uni. And then kind of asking, okay, so what is that person? What are they looking for in the world? What are they excited about? What are the questions that are keeping them up at night? And also not only exploring those ideas, but also how can we present, how can we be a mirror to them? Because I think it's really important that not everyone, or you don't always see yourself in the media around you. And I think it can be incredibly empowering and incredibly, I don't know, cauterizing to see a reflection of yourself on something on this big platform that you're not actually engaged in. It kind of shows that you have purpose and you have, you're, you're seen in your own community. Hmm. Because that's my responsibility. I want people to see themselves in this platform. Interesting. And within that these days, there's a lot of the, uh, the click mentality. So the headline, which leads to the click. So I guess it's a sort of a two-part question. How do you have the challenge of knowing that, knowing people, you know, so there's the headline that you've got mm -hmm. to put up and how you create the headline, the willing that um, lead to the click. But also more, how do you then cultivate that engagement beyond just a click where it becomes more of a conversation and more of a community? So is there ways that you address that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting because, you know, there is this clickbait mentality that everyone talks about. And mm. I think I think ID is pretty conscious of it, but I think that it exists in a community of publications that can sometimes kind of slide into that realm. And it's really hard because the idea is, you know, I kind of get up here and I talk very ephemerally about all these things that I really care about and all these things I want to champion. But at the end of the day, I also have to look at my numbers and go to my boss and be like, hey, 
I want to raise or, hey, I want you to employ this person or I want you to be able to give me more more money so I can pay my riders so they can have a quality of life that I believe in. But the reality is to do that, then I also need 30,000 people to click on a, a piece of content. So I think that there's kind of this balance where it's, we talk a lot about the different elements of a headline because it's really easy to be like, you'll never guess what this person said about this or 10 ways to change your opinion on that. So I think it's really just being conscious of like, what is the action in this headline? What is this promising the reader and who is this speaking to? Mm. But also at the same time, if you've got a good piece of content, you'll get a good headline out of it. So I think I always say to writers, when you're working on a piece of content, think of your headline. Because if you can't get a snappy, interesting headline out of it, you're probably not actually writing a very engaging piece of content. Mm. And do you have the battle of the sort of the, um, and I'm not sure of the financial modeling, you talk about that, the, you know, the need, it's a business. Mm-hmm. Um, the clash of the advertorial versus the editorial. Is that something that you have a, a battle of? In- yeah, it's kind of something we do talk about a lot. Ideas owned by Vice, which is a larger publication. And it's something that the company is divided into creative and editorial and then the people who are making you know, the sales. And we have this, we all love each other. We're like a really close company. But there is this kind of constant discussion about, I always say like, you know, guys, we're the goose that lays the golden eggs. You have to protect us. But then at the same time, they have to empower us. So I think that we are lucky in a way because I think they understand that. But it is this constant thing because, I mean, you can be writing the best content in the world, but if you're not paying your writers properly or you're not actively engaging and making sure that people are being treated well and there is money coming in that you can then practice what you preach, Mm. then you're kind of disempowered. And I think that's a big thing that happens in media a lot. Everyone wants to be online. Everyone wants to have an opinion. But also I think the commodification of ideas in a digital age means that there is also the fact that a lot of people aren't getting, they're not really getting reimbursed for their intellectual capital that we're all just farming constantly. So I tend to be a bit of a, I think some people get a bit funny about like ads and, you know, buy-ins and branded content. I'm a big believer that the more money you give to me, the more money I can pay my writers, the more money I can pay my staff, the more I can do, I can pay for my staff to do like, you know, additional training. I'm just like, take the money from the big guys and give it to the little guys. Fantastic. And in that, uh, in the theme of cultivate, we talk a lot about, we think I've naturally aligned to food and to cultivating food and growing food and sharing food. Um, But you talked then, and we've talked a little bit about leadership. So how do you cultivate a team? So how do you, you'd said already, you know, the team, we all love each other. Mm. And that's, you know, that came out and I heard that. So how do you, um, how do you cultivate that team and that teamwork within the organization? I mean, I think it's a, it's kind of multi-dimensional. There is a level that if you're making good work and you're making a publication that people can feel proud of and that they can be in a bar and someone asks them where they work and they can say I work at ID and they can feel good about it, that's mm. one thing. I'm also, I've been at the larger vice company for six years now and I'm kind of a senior member of editorial. I'm also just incredibly protective of the people around me. I'm very much like, I think that you need to just be present in the sense that like I want to be in meetings with them. I want them to feel like they can come to me, that they're safe, that they're protected. And that when we're writing these stories about, you know, the empowerment of women, the empowerment of fringe groups, about being your best self, about expressing yourself, that they, they can then come to the office and they can be having conversations with mm. people when they're actioning these, these beliefs that they're saying to other people. And I think a lot of young women at work, you know, it's one thing you write these stories about, you want to have all these 
you know, you should have everything. You should have all the same opportunities as men. You should be paid the same as men. But then you go into a, a meeting when maybe you're surrounded by a bunch of guys who are older than you or people who don't look like you or people who have a different lifestyle to you. And then you're suddenly incredibly destabilized in your own job. Mm. So I'm very much about being like, I'm always like, get behind me. Let me be the bad guy. <laughs> um, well, at least that's what I try and do. I don't know if every single person who's ever been a contributor feels like that. <laughs> yeah. um, and within that, there's a... You know, when you're curating the content, there's a um, can often be a choice around the values or the ethics of the choices you make. Um, is that something that you team and you feel strongly about when you're making decisions? Do you use, do you refer to values or the ethics that you have as an organisation or as a leader? I think we 100% do and I think it would be really sad to be someone who create, worked in media and didn't feel like that. Something that we talk about a lot though is we are all in this like incredible position of privilege we're also, most of us probably went to a private school or they probably grew up in the inner city. We are st still like predominantly, our team is quite white, which we're conscious of. And I think it's one thing to say like, hey, guys, like we should support people of different backgrounds. But I think something that we talk about a lot and it's something that a lot of people in media talk about a lot is also just not speaking for people. And so maybe my values at the moment is like, what I believe in is established, but it's also learning to not just get up there and preach to people, but it's letting people have their own voices be heard. Hmm. And when we cultivate a team, we're cultivating, we're inspiring a team and you're inspiring them to be creative and to provide you with the content for your thing. Um, so you have to be inspirational to the team. But what inspires you? What gives you that inspiration to do what you do? Well, something that, I mean, it's what we're talking about today. I'm incredibly inspired by the sense of community and building communities and networks. I grew up in Melbourne. A lot of my friends moved away and are now living in, you know, London and New York and things like that. I'm very much like, I love this city. I love what this city stands for. And I want to work to create this to not only be the place that people want to come to and they want to live, but mm. people can be proud of living here. And they feel like the, their every day is, they're interacting with things that they care about and they're seeing the things that they care about reflected back to them. So I guess in my own little pocket of the world, that's what I'm trying to do. Fantastic. And I believe that was a bell, but I can't not finish with a food question. What's your favourite food? <laughs> Actually, sandwiches. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank Wendy, please. Thank and thank Russell. So Michelle, you, you do a lot of different things and you're very smart and impressive, but I like the idea of starting by asking people to just define themselves. So when someone asks you, what do you do, who do you are, how do you answer that question? Oh, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, first I'd like to just say thanks for this opportunity to, you know, Robert and Peter and Jennifer uh, and Wendy for preparing all these. Yeah. So I suppose my, uh, what I do is about, what really touches me deeply is, is sort of social difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I've encountered this myself, and how does one belong when you're a first generation migrant and you come to a country like Australia? So uh, that sort of moved me to do a lot of research looking at uh, you know, the experiences of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and also encounters between indigenous peoples and and people like myself. 
So yeah, it's about belonging. Yeah, how does one how does one explore the complexity of belonging, and how does place really matter? Um, so I suppose uh, for me, emotions and feelings are really important, and the personal for me is always political. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think when I first arrived as a migrant, uh, I had to put up with all these labels like any you're an NESB. Ethnics do particular things. They behave in particular ways. Migrants do particular things. They, and people talked about good Muslims and bad Muslims. And you know how, how do you how, how do you, how do you belong then? You know when you, you people are unconscious. They're not doing it to hurt you, but you can feel that hurt. So how do you go on then? I mean, how do you get involved? How do you sort of cultivate that individual and what I say collective responsibility? It's hard. So, yeah, this is what I'm actually working with. Yeah. I think belonging is such an interesting idea to, I guess, to form the center of your practice because it's such an ephemeral idea, but it's also so deeply personal. And you kind of said that, I guess, the exploration of this was a way for you to personally kind of navigate your own place in Melbourne and the, the wider world. Can you talk a little bit, I suppose, in your work, how you set out to kind of define what that means personally for you? Uh, yeah, uh, the thing is that I had to actually go away from Melbourne. I had to go to Darwin to really understand about belonging because in a sense of a uh, I indigeneity was invisible in a sense. There was this presence, it was in art forms and everywhere. But I really felt it when I went to Darwin. And uh, the kind of welcome I experienced there from indigenous peoples, I mean, I just can't tell you that warmth. So I, I'm, uh, so I think it was about connecting back to, you know, the indigenous, uh, indigeneity helped me to feel that sense of belonging. So yes, I had explored white privilege, and I know white privilege very well because I feel it every day. But, uh, but the thing is that indigeneity helped me, to, helped me to make sense of my belonging in a much better way. And I, I also felt that when people who were migrants Many of them came from parts of Africa, and they told me, you know, in public spaces, these guys who live rough, they come up to you and they say, hey, same color, same color, and they welcome me, you know? They said, like, they're so casual about it. And so I think it's about that casual nature, but it was about me making that connection, I think. Mm. Yeah, and that is how I made sense of belonging. Yeah. I think that when we talk about belonging as a wider community, and especially, I suppose, in this century, there's the conversation is divided into two kind of groups. There's the sense that, you know, in a digital age, we're also disconnected from each other. No one talks. Everyone's very isolated. But then there's also the sense that in a digital age, we're all, you can be connected with anyone you want and you can build your own communities online and you can find your own communities. So from your point of view, how has the concept of belonging or the way that we, I guess, engage with that idea changed in the past, you know, two decades? Also, just with the digital age? Yeah, yeah. I think the digital is really important, and I was sort of in, I've been involved with some uh, some community work in the suburbs in the Dandenong area where I live, and uh, and also uh, most asylum seekers, many of them. I, I mean, I never call them asylum seekers, and they never identify as such. They say I'm from, you know, Myanmar or whatever, and uh, so the, the, this some many of them get a uh, get a phone, you know, an iPhone or whatever, somebody's old phone, and that really helps them to connect. And uh, I, I think so, and also when they're learning, like so I'm involved in a, pro a program where people come together in Dandenong and there's, you know, teachers, retired teachers come together with 
people who live from, you know, come from Afghanistan, etc. And uh, so there's this, this intercultural learning going on. And I remember talking to this particular person, and he, he couldn't understand what I was saying, and he wanted to actually find it out in his own language. So he went to his phone, and he went to the dictionary. They have an app. And he, ah, now I know what you're saying, he said. So, yeah, so it's, it's yeah, the digital space is definitely really important. And it also allows people, like I remember a particular guy had arrived from Myanmar, and he, he could keep in connection with people in Myanmar. Mm. And he was a temporary migrant. He was, on a t he was on a bridging visa for like eight years. He was uncertain. Like there's so much of uncertainty. But that connection, the fact that he could go on Facebook, even when he was in this... He was in a high-security detention center in Darwin where I visited him. And the fact that they have that little time to you know, use the Internet and make that connection was really important. Mm -hmm. So I think, that, I think that's, a, uh, yeah, so that's how the digital has sort of changed. But there's also a problem here because I remember there was, uh, I met this young woman and she had come from Iran by boat. And she, you're not allowed to take photos when you're in detention. And she said, you know, she called me aside because you would come to a community center and you would cook together. And this food was really important. We'd cook Iranian food, etc. But she said, you know, I want to send a photograph back to my sister in Iran. But we're not allowed. You can't go to the detention center with, with a camera. And we, I, my sister hasn't seen me for a long time. So in a sense, the digital is important because she can send all these texts and messages. But she actually wanted to send a photo. Hmm. So I'm not sure how Instagram works or in that case, whether they will had that access. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the digital is... Uh, I, I, put, I, I remember a young Muslim guy who I interviewed, and he said, you know, social media is a, is a double-edged sword, he said. So, yeah, it creates a lot of opportunities, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah, you're very much opening a door that yeah. people can move in two different directions. Yeah. You mentioned the community centre, and I just wanted to ask you, this is something that I personally have been thinking about a lot. My parents are migrants... And I think that 20 years ago, you had a lot of different, I guess, systems, or maybe not even 20 years ago, even 50 years ago, things like church or those kind of like central nucleuses of communities existed. So firstly, if you came to a community, you could maybe use that as your base. But also if you moved somewhere, it's a way to connect with like-minded people. Maybe it's not church. You know, it could be any kind of, I suppose, religious centre. But as we've become kind of more disconnected to our religious lives... How are people, like, what's taken that space? Like, what ha has anything taken that space? Or is it a vacuum now for people who are moving to Australia? Yeah, I think that's really important, the question that you ask. And uh, in a sense that I, I, find the, I find community a very problematic term because I think community is about, it's sort of this, it's supposed to give you this warm, fuzzy feeling. We all get, get along together. There's harmony. There's intercultural understanding. But for me, it's really messy. There's a lot of conflict, and there's a lot, but there's also a lot of possibility. So, and this is, the, and, and I've been focusing more on this, on this sort of, uh, on this sort of possibility. So, uh, and what was the second part you asked? I was just like, what has kind of taken that place now, or what? Oh, yeah, but, but religion. Yeah, I think what happens for first-generation migrants, at least from where I live, my my life's in the suburbs. I love the city, but my life's in the suburbs. So, and, and in deep suburbia. So, I think religion for first-generation migrants is really important. I've seen it. Christianity, our church is packed. They had to actually uh, renovate the church and expand it. Uh, but I think for the second generation, so for my children, etc. Religion becomes less important. 
But at the, at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking about Islam. I, I've i involved in a project where we looked at Islam and how Islam is important for for migrants when they arrive here. And and it's quite surprising that I mean it's, it's quite interesting for first generation migrants. You know, Islam is really important, but at the same time, they want to let go because you know they want to become sometimes Australian. And this whole idea of Australian is you know Anglo and white. And so sometimes they do let go. You know, you know, I'm a really, you know, I'm one of those cultural Muslims. But then what happens is that also Islam is a way for first gen some first-generation migrants and also for second-generation to connect. It gives them a sense that, in fact, they turn back to Islam, second-generation migrants sometimes. And so we noticed that Islam provided a sense of belonging. It gave them that strength to carry on when racism was so strong, when you know there's all this stuff, you know, right-wing populism, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim sentiment. How, like, how do you go on? So many of them, they may not feel comfortable to protest. Some of them do, or to come into forums like this. But sometimes in a smaller community group, or Islam might give them that strength. And uh, yeah, so, and also I wanted to talk about, you know, these, these forums are nice and they're great, but some people don't feel comfortable in these forums. So I think a lot of stuff goes all on also in underground spaces, what I call the shadow spaces, underground spaces, which, you know, slip under the radar. We never see it, but it's that these things are very important and these places are very important. These are the moments or places where I think generosity, love, responsibility, etc., are cultivated. So I'm really interested in that. When you say shadow spaces, what are you kind of specifically referring to? Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to thinking a little, a little bit about shadow spaces as, as spaces like off the radar, but spaces that are places of possibility. Mm. And, uh, but, uh, so yeah, this is how I, I'm sort of like trying to develop that in something that I'm writing. And you know, people like uh, you know look at the look at the Anthropocene and you know our our, our responsibility as you know climate change, etc. It's all about looking at those spaces. Mm. Yeah, I can uh, talk about it to you all day. This is yeah, yeah. Um, I had one final question I w wanted to talk to you about, and we actually kind of mentioned it briefly when we were chatting before. So we've kind of are in the centre of this kind of new wave of activism that's very much, I guess, it's being very embraced by young people. We've seen the Women's March. We saw the Invasion Day rally kind of... I probably have a different kind of conversation around it than it had the year before. We've seen all these rallies in support of um, Muslim migrants and just migrants from different places and asylum seekers. But I think a lot of people, they go to these rallies and they feel really empowered and then they leave and they just they don't know how to continue that action into their own life in a meaningful way. And what's your advice? How do you take these sentiments that exist in a public space and then really infuse them into your own life that can make a, a real change in your community? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, I have a student here who's also working in this area, David, and uh, so it's it's how how this sort of, it sort of fizzles out, you know, and what do you do? And I suppose you, you've got to have this ongoing, you know, commitment to or this, this habit of living with difference. A, a habit, you know, you can have bad habits and good habits. Habits are something you do without thinking. And so how do you develop these new habits of living with difference? And I, I've been looking at the more than human, the energies from the more than human world and the stuff that Law and Leo, which, you know, Benoit Jane talks about. Mm. So. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to finding out more about your shadow spaces, Michelle. <laughs> it's very intriguing. Yeah. So, so Jeffa, Jeffa Greenway, yeah. welcome. How are you? 
Yeah, so welcome, Jeffer. Jeffer's yeah. an award-winning architect and also a, uh, he's a, the director of Greenaway Architects and, you know, chair of Indigenous Architecture. So, yeah, very impressive uh, st stuff you do, you do Je uh, Jeffer. So, Jeffer, I just wanted to ask you, because when I was going through doing some little research on you, I, I came across this, that you, you are sort of the first Indigenous registered architect in Victoria. Is that right? I mean, how does it feel to be that? Yeah, well, th these things are actually hard to pin down definitively. And, you know, I, I tend to say sort of one of a, a handful. Um, you know, so, so to sort of step back a little bit to give some context, as, as best as we understand it, there's probably, you know, maybe 10, 12 registered in Indigenous architects nationally ever. Um, and so with that in mind comes a responsibility. And so while it's, it's difficult to sort of... Um, speak to a broader context, um, I guess I can only speak for myself. And so, you know, within Indigenous Australia, we're looking at an island continent. And so within that island content, continent, we have a, a very vast diversity. So we're looking at, you know, over 250 different language groups. So I can really only speak to my own experience and also speak of my connection to my own direct heritage. Um, but with that in mind, I think there's a, a huge opportunity and I think there's a real interesting ferment of finding meaningful ways to engage and so we're getting a lot of positive feedback in recent years about finding ways to connect in a meaningful way. Oh yeah I know and, and, and you've been doing that really well because I was just uh, I was looking at some of the work that you've done in these healing gardens and gathering places uh, uh, so so I think the healing garden at Monash, you've done also Nagrara place at RMIT, the Mulam Mulam indigenous gathering place. So how do you make your, I mean, these, how do you make this indigenous presence and values that about the cultivation of respect, you know, love and care for country? How do you make it visible? Could you tell us a little more about that? In the first instance, it's really about embedding a certain sensibility. And within that sensibility, it's about revealing layers of history and meaning that isn't readily apparent. And so what I think is it's a unique opportunity because we can celebrate equally that we're connected to the oldest continuing culture in the world. And so what I like to try and do is embed a narrative into the projects that I undertake, working with community, engaging in stories and developing a conversation which is... Uh, embeds a sort of deep listening. So it's about a process in many respects as well. And so I think in, in many respects, creatives can come to a particular proposition and think they can solve all the problems. But particularly in dealing with community, the community you're engaging with have the knowledge. So then it's about a two-way conversation to tease out and not impose a solution, but start to uh, infuse it with the ideas which are generated through those conversations. And so what I try and do is start to draw upon uh, layers. And the way I go about this is starting to break down some of those barriers between the silos that we often get caught up into around which discipline you might be from. And so my approach is what I call Indigenous placemaking. And so with that in mind, you know, sometimes it requires an interior solution. 
Sometimes it requires a landscape solution, sometimes it might be an architectural solution. And so I guess at, at the core of it is that well of creative problem solving and design thinking, but fused with um, a particular perception of, of space and connection and starting to amplify those opportunities. And, you know, and sometimes it's also about connecting strongly to history. Mm. Yeah, I think I really was sort of affected by the, when you, when you said deep listening, because this is something that I'm really interested in about how it affects you, how you respond, how it's multi-sensory. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about one of your projects, maybe the Mulam Mulam or one of the others, and how you actually incorporate and design this whole idea of deep listening? Um, one project which we did recently was at RMIT. Uh, it was in the city-based campus. It's a place called Nagara Place. And it's connected to the Indigenous unit of the university. And what they were wanting to do there was to tangibly um, showcase these opportunities for reconciliation in meaningful ways. And so what we thought of there was to find a way where we can start to tell a story that exists and demonstrates a sense of cultural continuity. And so the starting point was to embed an idea around the, um, the seven seasons of the Kulin Nation. And so here we was given the opportunity to start to unpack uh, a story which exists, which Aboriginal people know about, but the mainstream populace aren't aware of. And so we tend to default to a sort of European-centric um, way of seeing, for instance, the seasons, but it's much more subtle and nuanced uh, here in Australia, and you know, including within Australia, uh, and in Victoria and in Melbourne more broadly. And so here what we did was we created a, uh, an urban design interventional landscape uh, courtyard which connects to the university campus. And so at the starting point, we started to look at how can we reference the uh, bioregion in which we're located. And so we started to develop a palette of materials which talk to different ways of connecting to the landscape. And so we embedded uh, materials which were uh, edible plants, medicinal plants, plants used for weaving. And then around that, we could celebrate uh, cultural traditions, for instance, a uh, smoking ceremony, welcome to country, um, and also traditional dance. And so at the centre of this space was a fire pit. Within that fire pit, we created this uh, bespoke uh, sculptural element, which reflects some of the cultural practices that exist within the southeast. And so the patination that we used reflected not this sort of default positioning of Indigenous culture as Indigenous equals primitive, Indigenous equals um, remote and uh, centres or dot paintings. And we wanted to specifically reference what happens here in terms of the cultural practice. And so what we, we did there was we used line work. And so some of the ideas reference uh, from my country, which is northwest New South Wales, and occur occurs all the way through the eastern seaboard down to Victoria, um, where we would have, for instance, what's known as a scar tree. And a scar tree is where you remove the bark and you'd use that bark to create things like a coolamon or a, a canoe. And then you'd have this remnant scar in the tree. So it speaks to this idea of ecology and sustainability. So you wouldn't cut down the tree to remove the bark to make the canoe. You only sort of remove what you need. But within those scars, often in my country, there would be um, a sort of scarification 
and there'll be carving within those scars. And they signified either important places for ceremony or also uh, spaces which acknowledged um, important people, elders and the like. And so we use that patination through the ground plane, etched into the, um, the paving surface as well, and that started to, to sort of branch out and connect to the adjacency. And so these were some of the sort of ideas we embedded into, into that particular project. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you know, you know Melbourne, uh, the university like RMIT, etc., receives a lot of international students. So, you know, when, uh, I mean, I just was involved in some work, when, when international students come, they have this idea of Australianness, which is sort of Anglo-white. Uh, so how do you sort of lure people into the space in RMIT and sort of change na dominant narratives of Australianness? Yeah. Well, how, how do you think that could happen? Yeah. Importantly, I think it's about broadening the frame of reference that we come to these uh, questions. And, you know... I'm involved quite a bit within uh, universities in, in terms of teaching studios and the like. And so what I find invariably is, and I often theme these uh, studios around this notion of Indigenous placemaking, and the amount of times I have students, and we've got a large proportion of international students uh, at Melbourne University, somewhere in the order of sort of 50 to 60%, depending on which subjects. And so they're crying out to find a way to connect explicitly to this place. And there is this sort of homogeneity across cultures uh, which has a sort of a predominant and dominant discourse around Western values and ideas. And so the best way I think we can start to connect to this place is start to tell the stories that occur here. And so I have students coming back and saying, well, why did it take my sort of final thesis studio before we were actually um, immersed into this particular um, dialogue? And so they're very um, interested and engaged to find ways to understand what is different here. And so this becomes a really interesting opportunity to start to have that conversation. But it also talks to this idea of how do we respond to difference? How, for instance, if somebody came to me and said, oh, I want you to design a, a Lithuanian community centre. Well, I know very little about Lithuanian culture. So what are the processes and methodologies one goes around to start to understand and unpack to ensure that you have a, a sensibility, but you, you do it in a respectful way? And you also understand what are the, the essence of a, a culture or an identity that you can start to infuse into design strategies. And so they become really interesting um, means of engagement to start to connect and find ways in which that's done uh, and then start to broaden uh, the opportunities to engage in, in, in this particular um, way of thinking. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. And I, and, and I always think of difference. When I think of difference, it's, it, it is, you know, you have all those negative stuff, but, you, but I always think of it in an affirmative way, you know, to look forward, to be hopeful. So, but how, how, do you, how, how does it work out for you to be, how can you move forward with hope, even, you know, even thinking about those histories of colonial practices that have resulted in death and dispossession, and, here I'm and that haunt the city. And I'm thinking of some of your involvement in this work, which was the Tana Minowit Memorial. Yeah, that, yeah. For those who are not familiar, in the city of Melbourne recently, and it was launched last year, there was a, a monument just behind RMIT near the, the city bars uh, called the Tanaminaway Mulboyhina uh, Memorial. And what this does, it talks about a story of the first publicly executed people in Melbourne, happened to be two Aboriginal men. The remains are believed to be in the, um, the Melbourne Cemetery at the Queen Victoria Market. 
And so this is a very interesting part of our history which has been kind of subsumed. And so um, the community for over a decade have been lobbying to create a, a marker which talks to that sort of colonial interface that occurred. Um, and so I was involved in the assessment panel around the selection of that piece. And the piece is a very contemporary um, form of public art, if you like, but also merging sort of a landscape design as well. And so these opportunities give us an, a way to understand some of those stories, and not in a way which is negative or sort of preachy, but just to acknowledge the, the complexity that exists within a major metropolis like Melbourne, which is obviously has been colonised, and starting to say, well, these stories also need to be told. And I think it's quite a brave... Um, you know, the city of Melbourne was the one who, who pushed this along. It's a brave intervention within the city because it starts to talk about the contested histories that exist. And so I think there are more ways we can start to do this because it starts to add to the richness and the layers that actually exist, which not many people are familiar with. And so these, I think, are, are great uh, ways to do that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, how much time do we have left here? So maybe is there anything else maybe which I haven't asked, which you'd like to speak about? Well, I guess what I'm particularly interested in at the moment is the nexus of how we start to fuse different disciplines and start to connect um, some of those elements in very sort of rich ways. And so I'm thinking of some of the roles that I've been undertaking recently with the City of Melbourne within the public arts domain. And so what I'm, you know, what's interesting there is that um, there are so many amazing creatives that exist uh, in our city and Aboriginal people kind of punch above their weight. So we see it in, in art and we see it in music and we see it in, in other different artistic forms. And you know, architecture is kind of the last bastion. It's kind of the one area in which Aboriginal people hasn't, haven't sort of fully embraced, but I think it starts to... Uh, it's understanding the value proposition of what good design offers to any community. And so within that, I think there is a, a possibly, possibility to sort of strengthen culture within the built environment, and I think all of us have a sort of a, a part to play, regardless of the particular discipline um, that we align ourselves to, but I think there is a real uh, potential there for us to, you know, do things differently and the nexus between where art and architecture fuses is where I think some of the really interesting stuff is starting to evolve and, and happen um, in our cities now. So uh, I, th I think that's a, a really exciting proposition. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Jeff. Well, that's okay. great. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> so now I'm interviewing Peter. We could actually stay here we without changing indeed. the seats. Indeed. So, Peter, in many respects, you're a little bit similar to me in that you wear a number of different hats. So, not only are you an architect and a, a practitioner in, in the built environment professions, you're also a design communicator, but you've also always had your foot in the door of uh, educating, and you also... Uh, have a social consciousness in some of your other roles in terms of sitting on different panels and boards and ambassadors and the like. And so what I'm wanting to do is start to unpack some of that diversity of the skill set that enables somebody who has a sort of creative mindset to start to embark in, in such a diverse range of activities. And I'm thinking in the first instance, you know, through your practice you've been involved a lot in hospitality. And so with that in mind, how do you think 
the capacity of design thinking enables you to uh, cultivate this idea of conviviality yep. and connectedness with people. Yeah, yeah. So there's two parts to that question. Uh, thank you. The first bit's about, um, I guess, taking on more than you can actually cope, cope with uh, <laughs> well. And so as an architect, you're, treated to, you're, you're taught to uh, learn a lot about everything, but you end up retaining very little because you're spread so, so, so wide and thin. And I guess uh, that stuck with me. So I spread myself even more thinly across a lot of, a lot of uh, areas. Um, and it's very exciting to be able to be offered to do that sort of thing, even like being here today, for sure. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, as an architect, you're put in a unique position where um, you're able to understand lots of things in, in its basic sense without having to understand the fine detail. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it sort of grows organically from university, you know, we study architecture and you, you, you cover so many uh, disciplines, structure, history, um, uh, you know, accounting, building techniques, building science, and so you have this uh, broad view of the world. And aren't we lucky as architects to have that? You know, there's not many disciplines where we, we, we can have this broad view. Uh, and I guess it's just by, by sheer chance that um, I was tapped on the shoulder and given the opportunity to do some work in the media, which has uh, opened up other fantastic opportunities. So that's all by chance, really. That's all, you know, not planned for when you write your life, um, your life chart. The second part of the question regarding uh, hospitality and the work we do in that area, um, Melbourne has, a, 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 has gone through and is going through an incredible transformation and a number of the speakers have, have brought that up today. Uh, and, and from in my lifetime, uh, it started when, when I graduated as an architect around 18, uh, 1989, 1990. And um, the city was transformed forever with the change to liquor licensing laws. Um, uh, we were not able to uh, drink outside and there's no such thing as a cafe liquor licence. Uh, we're a more draconian society with five o'clock closing, uh, six o'clock closing, sorry, you're knocked off at five and you get to the pub for an hour and got totally whacked and went home blind for the evening. Uh, and that was the only way you could socialise. And, and so that was, you know, uh, that, that, that change happened with John Kane uh, and John Neuenhausen, the reader of economics, who, who rewrote the liquor laws. And so that, that particular um, transformation and also um, the uh, Jeff Kennett's uh, Postcode 3000 uh, um, initiative, which enabled living in the city. You know, in, in 1990, there was a couple of thousand people living in the city. We've got, uh, you know, it's, uh, 40 to 45,000 people living in, just in the CBD area now. So uh, those, two, those two acts came about when I started architecture. Um, and, and so I got a, a, luckily was in the hospitality area. And so a lot of uh, my work has been, uh, my lifetime's work has been about uh, the, the ground plane. That's the, where the buildings hit the pavement. And, and it's a, the cafe, restaurant, hospitality sector, which I've been engaged with. Um, not the big buildings that we look at on the horizon, but more the, uh, the bottom feeder area of architecture uh, has been what I've been involved with. Uh, and it's a delightful area to be because it's, it's where people interact. We socialise and we, we, we garner friendships and we eat and we, we talk and we, we grow food uh, and we, we get uh, people, great supporters that want to support us through all that. So, um, you know, um, the government's in behind this now. We're a different society and it's, it's only, again, with the population growth, it's only going to become more important that, that, that hospitality uh, and, and cultivating a, a sense of being able to communicate through food, through dining, through drinking and through wonderful forums like this. Right. And so with this idea and that sort of notion of understanding the space between buildings, 
How have you sort of looked at it sort of philosophically in terms of, has it sort of changed your view in terms of the interaction between people and the, the capacity of designers to actually amplify those opportunities? It's interesting, isn't it, that whole, um, how important is design uh, in, in controlling a city? Is it, is it required at all? I've just come back from uh, a few weeks in Morocco and um, the most exciting place I was in was uh, Fez where there's no planning at all, there's no architecture per se and the, the city's incredibly dense, all the, uh, the inhabitants, three, 300,000 people live in this one dense little thousand year old uh, uh, walled city and there's no design per se and yet they're very happy people, they've, they've worked out uh, a kind of matrix of interactions that, um, and they've all got smiles in their faces, they haven't got all the, the um, you know, the, the uh, material wealth that we have become to rely on and they're very happy people. I, I spent a, a, a few days in a, a better one, uh, sorry, a, a, um, at the base of the Atlas Mountains in an indigenous uh, camp doing some uh, cooking lessons, which were badly overdue. But uh, the, the, the way those people existed in this remote location, uh, the kids were kicking a, a, a deflated soccer ball in the dust and were having an absolute ball interacting. And, and I'm more interested in, in, in um, how we can get that joy back into our lives in an urban way and I'm not sure whether architecture actually does it. I think, I don't know whether, uh, New York City's a great example, you know, it was a, a lost city and suddenly it's found and uh, it, it's a really quite a brutal um, way to divide the city up. So it's the human interaction and the way we, we inhibit, inhabit our cities um, and the government's got something to, 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 uh, to sort of big say in all that, but uh, it's interesting the way it, that architecture, we've spent our lives trying to do it, is impose a kind of a, an aesthetic or a way to interact, and, and uh, I'm not sure we're coming about it the right way. Yeah, well, I think also we, we have this idea of trying to um, find ways where we can, we can connect people. And so density becomes important. So the, the number of people within a, a metropolis enables those interactions to happen, more happenstance. Um, and, and I seem to think that good design is, is a process of subtraction. So I think there is that capacity to sort of over-design things. Um, but sort of with that in mind, um, what is it, and it seems to me that you have a love for Melbourne, particularly. Um, what is it about the culture here that really sort of resonates and that you think um, enables us to nurture those connections and to really, that there is something different and distinct that's happening here as yep. opposed to other parts yeah, of Exactly of right, Jeff. And, and um, you know, we're very lucky here being Melburnians and I, I certainly uh, appreciate it. We're in a, a, a very, um, we're, in a, we're in a sort of melting pot of opportunity. You know, we have long winters where we're locked up at home and we can uh, think about, um, the finer things in life. We have a very stable economy. We're relatively accepting of multicultural um, uh, society. We, we have a, uh, a very strong and rich art society and we, we interact very well, we communicate very well, we're relatively well off and we're far enough away from conflict uh, and um, also natural disaster. So we've got a very stable base to be able to develop this incredible, you know, we're supposed, supposedly the, the, the um, most livable city in the world. And so this um, opportunity doesn't come across very often. No wonder people want to come and stay in Australia. So all that history and that opportunity really has developed a city which is, which is totally unique. And um, 
you know, I think that the the architecture fraternity is very strong here. Uh, there's not a lot of competition. There's a lot of collaboration, and I particularly love knowing, looking out across the city and knowing that Roy Grounds designed that building, or DCM designed that building, and or you know, getting to know the designers. They're very much uh, public and 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 um, made available, not remote. So this wonderful kind of uh, uh, history we have in Australia, in Melbourne particularly, is uh, develops a very rich society for for interaction and and for architecture and to cultivate, go on cultivating and, and celebrating those opportunities. And there, there is a genuine interest. We see it in places like the Open House Melbourne program where you get thousands upon thousands of Melbournians coming out to sort of take a sneak peek into some of those sort of hidden gems that exist here. Yeah, so Open House, uh, we get about 120 to 150,000 people coming to the city in the middle of winter when it's about top temperature 8 degrees outside with their beanies and coats on, queuing up to get through, look through lost spaces. So this is um, Melbournians open up, opening up their locked up spaces, their rooftops and basements to let other people, you know, the, the, the general public come through and see these lost spaces. And what a great program that is, you know, it's, it's like this event, like Naomi's initiative, you know, it's, it's, a, it's Melbournians opening up their heart, opening up their spaces so they can share that. And, uh, you know, I'm very much part and, and into uh, celebrating this, this wonderful uh, fabric we have here. You've also had the unique opportunity through your role with Grand Designs to engage with a whole diversity of different people across this nation in a very intimate setting of their own homes. So through that sort of process, what have you learnt about the sort of the interactions and connections with people and how place plays a role in, in that understanding of that intimacy? And you, you do it in your own practice in terms of design, uh, of designing a home. It's, so I've done uh, about 71-hour episodes now over the last eight years. <laughs> and uh, so I've travelled a lot and seen a lot of, and, and taken part in what is the biggest thing people do in their lives, other than get married and have kids. But it's the biggest financial commitment and emotional commitment. And, you know, people are, are more aware of, you mentioned place, they're more, more aware of a, um, getting materials from the, the local um, area, using local craft and trade, and trying to come up with a, a solution that's relevant to them. And so there's, there's a great uh, buoyancy and optimism out there um, and architecture does have a lot to play. People watch our show and uh, inspires them to have a go at doing something that's special to them. But there's a lot of experimentation happening out uh, all over Australia and there's not one solution, there's not one answer because the climate, our geography uh, and our, our, our people are so diverse and I think that's a healthy thing. You know, there's, it, there's not one material that's right for everybody and there's not one layout that's right for everybody, not one design solution. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a um, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot to be proud of and a lot to look forward to here in this country. There's a, there's a lot of brave people doing brave work, putting everything on the line to do something which is out of the box. Um, so there's a lot to celebrate. Oh, very much so. And taking the sort of the nucleus of the, the single dwelling, can we repeat that when we start to change the, the density in our cities and take some of those key, the sort of essence of what actually works within in a, a singular home and start to repeat that through a larger project. Yeah, look, um, so I've studied quite a lot, this the, the whole density thing, um, and we're going through a metamorphosis in the city. You know, the, the apartment guidelines have just been written by Richard Wynne Richard Wynn, uh, late last year, and that's still a, a work in progress. 
Um, you know, I think we're talking about density before uh, with with Kate with the, how the city's growing. We're looking at a million people a year in Australia. We're looking at 15 million people in the next 15 years. And you can imagine the MCG, 100,000 people, 10 of those every year growing in this country. So the idea of density is something we're not going to solve. We've got this middle band of, of most cities, which is the quarter acre block, and they're being nibbled away at. Uh, and there's new types being built all the time trying to solve this density thing and everyone's trying to protect their backyard. So um, there's not an answer about, uh, your question was about, is there a, a, a one thing that you can repeat and is there a solution in that repetition? Um, I don't think there is at this stage. I think that we're still finding our way, what that will be. Um, I do think there's a problem with uh, the spiky development going on just outside the city. Um, there's, you know, if you look at the great cities of the world, they're all five to six storeys, and there's, a, there's an ability for you to look out the window, see a treetop, and be able to see someone's face and be able to communicate with that face. And I think when we go, we grow out of that band, we disconnect with basic human dignity and, 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 uh, and a connectedness to the, to the, the real world. That's my own opinion. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that um, there's some great new exemplar buildings being built. We talked about, Kate, some of those, uh, you know, today that's happening at Newell Station and some of the Nightingale stuff. And there's a, there's a whole new, there's a new um, way that people are finding a way through that affordability density issue that's, that's still unfolding. And I, I guess the other thing that we're always encountering within the built environment professions is this idea of sustainability. And so we know we have limited resources. So what role do we have to play to start to uh, you know, make that better? But also equally, is, there a, is it required of the built environment creatives to have a social conscience where they can start to change the way in which we um, operate within our cities? Cultivating a sense of sustainability, I think, is an easy task today. I think people are very aware of what sustainability means. There's no longer building controls. There's no longer an award system that recognises sustainable architecture. It's part of every category in our award system uh, and it's understood. I think the sustainability is now moving on to a second or third phase and it's more to do with the way we conduct ourselves. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the way we interact with people, the way we deliver food. It's the way we think about multiculturalism. It's the way we dress ourselves and transport ourselves. And it's not so much about a six-star, green-star house anymore. So I think it's moved on to another, a kind of another, another conversation. Uh, and that's kind of exciting, isn't it? You know, it's, and it's kind of caring for the world. So it's a holistic approach to sort of well-being. Yeah, and it's not just about your own little patch. So I think there's, there's a new consciousness about that. Right on the okay, bell. I think we're, we're done. So if we can thank Peter for his contribution and uh, I think he's going to, to wrap up now. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffa. Robert, should I wrap up? Or would you like to come and join me? Well, I don't know where the last uh, few hours have gone and uh, it's been uh, a fantastic fire-powered event. And... Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to just run through some of the quotes I've picked up during the conversations with uh, some of the fantastic people who have been up on stage this morning. Um, and it started off with uh, Kate, Robert, talking about the 3,000 acres and her, her wonderful initiative in that area, trying to find lost pieces of land in our great city and doing something with it where people get their fingernails dirty. And I know the next generation, my son's doing that, 
and he's just boxed up his garlics and he reckons he'll make a thousand bucks out of, out of a, a couple of big bags of garlics. He's grown in the out blocks of, outskirts of Melbourne. So I know the youth are interested in that and, uh, and I think that it's a terrific initiative and I'm looking forward to seeing the way this city changes other than just, you know, mock facades and rooftops, genuine green space that people engage with. So thank you for your input. Catherine, Lord uh, Mayor's charitable fund. You've certainly, I didn't know there were so many people trying to get money off you. Wait, <laughs> how do you beat them off? Um, but, you know, I, 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 I picked up a couple of pointers. If there's anyone in the audience who wants to get dough from Catherine and her organisation, make a pitch and do your homework. And make sure you've got a DGR taxable uh, deduct, deductible approval. Is that right, Catherine? For some of your funding. Um, but also, that was interesting that uh, you know, 41% of our food bowl is vulnerable in the outskirts of Melbourne, and 82% of our vegetables are grown in out of Melbourne. And, and you know, I, I would be led to believe it all comes from the north coast of Tasmania uh, through Costa, but no, it's not the case. It's all, it's all grown here. So, um, and uh, the other thing I think is is that that we're we're um, sustainable food systems and 21 housing estates. That's an interesting. Uh, initiative that you're involved with and also the the um, what's good in Melbourne is the sports arts multicultural green acres uh, which which you brought our attention to so thank you for that and then we had Amy who talked about the Women's Leadership Institute and uh, gave us tips on women's participation for all ages in the workforce and politics so uh, that was that was a terrific uh, talk thank you Amy and um, and I thought it's just some of your quotes be contrary and inappropriate and have inappropriate behaviour. So to make a noise and be seen. So, so that was an interesting quote. And the other thing is have something good to say and you and then build a profile around it. And uh, I liked your Simone de Beauvoir quote, which is uh, the universal and the other is still at play. So that was some sort of uh, um, some poignant comments you had to, had to uh, say. And I'm just looking at my, trying to understand my writing. It's, 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 and it's not about women, it's, it's all about what men can do. So I like the way you twisted it on its head, so well done. And then we had Russell on stage talking about the food justice truck, which is, I think has been cleaned for, cleaned for today, Russell. It's the cleanest truck I've seen. Well done. This morning. This morning. <laughs> and I think, well Russell, is that right there? Uh, we have, you've brought along some, some apples for us all to, to have from, from the food justice truck. And the reason the part of the project, you weren't selling food here today. Um, did, did you want to explain why? That was basically because you have a, 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 a program where you go to different areas and this isn't one of the spaces that you normally sell? Wow. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and a couple of your quotes too, Russell. Um, food is a basic human right, which is nice, to, nice of us to be told that, and I think that's kind of a, a powerful statement. Food is connection, food is dignity, and food is more than a meal that you're eating. So it's, it's a good way of us to refocus about, you know, when we have that, that wonderful celebration a number of times a day to look at what we're doing Differently, so thank you for that. And I think the food truck also won a Premier's Design Award. Yes, last year. And then we had Wendy, a writer and editor of ID Australia. Thank you, Wendy. Um, 
Now, making uh, this was a couple of your quotes, Wendy. Yell out if I've written it down incorrectly. Uh, but we talked about the importance of uh, digital technology and, and making web and remote issues um, are able, people are able to connect and you're using digital uh, media like your own microphone. Uh, it's like I'm on the stage today telling and, and interacting. You're seeing the digital age much like that. And also you're, you're t tapping into the needs of society and... Um, the content matters as much as the content headline. I thought that was a nice way of seeing writing. It, you know, it's, it's the body of the work, not just the headline. And also, you, you cultivate not only the readers, but also the team that work that make your magazine. And I thought that was really good, because if you don't have the team around you to be able to do something that's meaningful, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to do. So it's, it's good to see the way you, you put your team together. Michelle, a lot of optimism and, and uh, a lot of uh, lovely things you have to say. Michelle's a fellow at Deakin University. And um, I like the way you're tapping into people's emotions. And you see that as a big part of your research and what you do. It's not just about what people uh, physically produce, but it's about more of a transcendental connection you have with people. And um, it's, it's uh, uh, the way you... Uh, um, uh, appreciate indigenous com communities is, is more on a, a, um, an emotional and feeling level. And so there's an empathy there with what you're doing that I picked up on. And that, that you acknowledge the power of the digital age also and, and the importance of the app for, for uh, different cultures to, to connect. And it's funny how you know, we think of uh, indigenous cultures as being more of a, uh, you know, an earthy, um, tactile experience. But the way the digital age, it's, it's having its play, a part to play in, in the way indigenous communities connect. And one of the first things uh, the indigenous communities do is buy a phone. And, and uh, that, that the power of that phone is being used in that way. So I was interested to hear the way you used that, talked about that. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm interested to find out what shadow spaces mean in the book you're writing. Uh, and Jeff, uh, uh, thank you for your contribution this morning. Uh, Jeff is an architect and has uh, done a number of projects that I've been through. And, and Jeff's um, project, project at RMIT sounds particularly interesting because the way it reinterprets, reinterprets seasons uh, and, and, and it's there for you to read in a built way, not in a storytelling way. And you don't have to wait for the whole year to see the seasons. You, actually, you can go and walk through the RMIT garden uh, and, and interpret the way seasons uh, are, are, are made uh, in, in, a, in a physical way. And, Jeff, I like the way you, you expressed um, architecture in, in that it was a way of teasing out and infusing projects with a sense of Indigenous placemaking. So it's not necessarily about the act of architecture, it's the hidden layer that you've got to interpret, interpret, interpret underneath the physicality of, of, of places. So uh, I enjoyed the way you gave us another view about what architecture can be. Um, and then I think I was on next. <laughs> I'm not sure what I said. Uh, only that, it, uh, just to, to reiterate that uh, um, this this place is uh, very much connected to what I think today's talk was about, and the, the, the way we cultivate not only food and, and pr uh, produce, storytelling, and and uh, lost spaces, but the way you know placemaking is made by ephemeral structures like this one, 
where Bijoy has created something that connects to the earth, to the water, to the air and to the sky. And, and so we've talked about those sorts of uh, ways Melburnians can build on the way, build on to that kind of idea with the various disciplines and, and, and expertises that have been brought to us today. So I thank all the participants. I thank uh, Robert and uh, Naomi and Catherine and everyone that's put on today and it's been a pleasure being here hosting this. Thank you so much. And I think, thank you, Peter, you've done an amazing job as a host. Um, I think what you were talking about, very much this sort of sense of conviviality and, and the sense of creating spaces. And the topic is very broad, that sort of sense of cultivation, but I suppose what I think what came across was this cultivating a sense of belonging. And so many people talked about um, Melbourne and, and how they connect with Melbourne. And I think this sort of sense of cultivating community, cultivating... Um, cultivating plants, cultivating food, but also cultivating um, a connection was really uh, uh, an important element of what you had to say and what you brought to, the, to this discussion. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jennifer, for the topic. And 